Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the 1948 film, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So let's step into the video store and see how Barrett's doing. Barrett, how's it going? It's going well, Sam. Good morning. Uh, this was a, a really uh, a really fun film to watch. We were just talking uh, before we started recording. This is a movie that I was deeply familiar with, even though upon watching it, I've never seen it. Um, and it was, it, it's interesting because it's one of those things. It's almost like um, sometimes when you read Shakespeare and you're like, why, why is this so familiar? And it's like, well, because people for 500 years have been like referencing this or, or retelling this story or even using a turn of phrase. So, and then you realize, like, but this is where it comes from. Um, and this, so this film has a little bit of that that I've seen. I can't tell you how many parodies i've seen of the treasure of the sierra madre sometimes without even realizing that's what it was um but i i really really enjoyed this film so let's start with our uh, our usual uh question to kick it off what is your history with this film i'm trying to remember the first time i saw it it was long enough ago that i don't remember the first time i saw it and there were, i and i remembered very little of the film unfortunately um, I suspect I probably watched it uh, on Netflix uh, on a disc probably back in the mid-90s or so when I was trying to catch up on classic Hollywood. Um, you know, it's a film that um, I associate most strongly with uh, Humphrey Bogart, and I've got a kind of long history with Bogey, so that's, uh, that's probably the category I put it in. I've always thought of it as a Bogart film, even though it's very much a Walter uh, Houston uh, film. Right. So maybe let's talk a little bit about Humphrey Bogart. I mean, he's somebody who, if you had asked me uh, without thinking about it, how familiar am I with him? I'd be like, I've seen some of his films. But then I started to go through his filmography. and I'm like, actually, I've seen way more of these than I thought. Um, and he's in a lot of really, um, really famous, really kind of important films. Um, and I just sometimes I forget that he's in that. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess he is. Um, so what is what is your history with uh, with Bogart or your connection with him? Well, you know, I'm, I guess when I say my history with Bogart, I also have to say my history with, uh, with James Cagney because my first taste of really classic Hollywood films, especially gangster films, was watching Cagney in 1935's Angels with Dirty Faces. Um, Bogart's not in that film, but it's the kind of the kind of film that Bogey made. And so, you know, I don't really remember my first Bogart film. It probably was Maltese Falcon. Um, and for the sake of this conversation, let's say it was the Maltese Falcon, because that was the first film that Houston uh, directed. Uh, and it's the film that made Bog Bogart a star. Uh, and because uh, originally uh, it, it wasn't going to, Bogey wasn't going to be the the, uh, the main lead in that film. Uh, George Raft was the uh, was the big player at the time. But that was the first of six films that Houston and, and Bogart made together. So that's so I, I think I started out initially thinking about Bogey as kind of a kind of a tough guy. Um, but one of the things I like about him is he plays such a range of characters and. He's one of those selfless actors willing to make himself look entirely ridiculous, as he does in this character. Fred C. Dobbs is, a, is an awful person. And he um, seemed excited about that. I mean, leading up to this, he was telling yeah. the press, like, just wait till you see yeah, that. How, 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 what, what, yeah, what an awful little so-and-so I am in this, in this film. Yeah, no, he really seemed to, he, he enjoyed playing flawed characters. I mean, you can also see in the Fred C. Dobbs character, you can see the... Um, that he's kind of uh, practicing for the Kane mutiny. Um, hmm. I mean, no, nobody did paranoia better than Bogart. Um, and so that's, that's one of the things I really like about him is he's really got quite a range and he didn't, he didn't always have to be the hero. In fact, he preferred to be the flawed, either the flawed hero or the actual villain. 
What's interesting about him, and this actually reflects back on what we were saying about this film, is I one of the notes I had with this film was how how much I would have enjoyed watching this with actually fresh eyes yeah. without because like I went into this knowing like oh I know where this goes I I've, I've seen lots of clips of it I know the story well and I would say a, a similar thing with Bogart uh, because of when I grew up the 1980s was just filled with even in like the cartoons I would watch there was often a character who was like somebody doing a Bogart impersonation so like it's so uh, caricatured to me. And mm-hmm. sometimes when I actually watch Humphrey Bogart, it's like, well, I, I, I like, like it's, it seems like he's doing an impression, and I have to remind myself, no, he's doing the thing. That's him, you yeah. know. Um, and and I think that I wouldn't say it takes me out of uh, out of some of these movies, but it definitely, I'm aware of him as Humphrey Bogart. Not he, he can't. Um, and I don't know at the time if this was possible. Like he doesn't slip into characters. Although I will say, like with Casablanca, like I believe that that's who this guy is. Um. But but sometimes I'm reminded of oh this is movie star Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, I uh, I I, I, th- I think that happens sometimes with, with more actors than others. Um, you know my uh, I think for of contemporary actors or relatively contemporary actors, Jack Nicholson can sort of be that way. You're always kind of aware it's Jack Nicholson or Al Pacino, people like that. Mm-hmm. But now that you mentioned Casablanca, I have to get one other thing out of the out of the way, and that is that just as the line about stinking badges. And Sierra Madre is always misquoted. Um, so too is the famous line in Casablanca, which nobody says. Nobody says play it again, Sam. Um, they say play it, Sam, about two or three times, but they never say. So so not only is this part, as you say, this kind of long lore, but along the way it becomes slightly corrupted. So the most memorable line was actually never said in the film. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, so a- as we're talking about actors, um, maybe let's talk about Walter Houston, who's John Houston's father. Um, who was Walter Houston uh, going into this movie? He ends up winning uh, an Academy Award Best Supporting Actor in this. Uh, but Walter uh, Walter Houston was an um, uh, was not just John Houston's father, but he was a prominent actor, correct? Yeah, he was. Um, in fact, he had to be persuaded by his son to take this role because. Um, he still considered himself a leading actor. And uh, the idea of being a supporting actor was something he wasn't quite sure he was ready to accept. Uh, he had, uh, so he won Best Supporting Actor for the film, um, for this film, but it was uh, actually his, uh, his fourth nomination. He'd been nominated uh, for uh, lead, uh, leading actor in uh, uh, William Wyler's film Dodsworth in 1936. He was nominated for The Devil and Daniel Webster in 1941, which is a really, really terrific film, by the way. And his performance- I have seen that. Yeah, his performance is old scrap. The Devil is fantastic. Um, And then he was also, another Cagney film I haven't seen in years, um, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. uh, Does uh, he play as the father or- Um, Yes, I think that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was so going to say he looks familiar, and that's yeah. why, because I because I remember seeing that movie many times as a kid. Yeah, and uh, sadly, this was one of his last roles. He actually just died three. He died three years later from a aortic aneurysm. Uh, but yeah, he was he was you know he, by this time John Houston was pretty well established, but certainly Walter Houston had a very uh, significant uh, reputation at the time. I thought he was magnetic in this movie, especially the first time you're introduced to him when he's when they go into the like boarding oh. house and he starts and he's 
you kind of step in mid conversation as he's talking about to somebody else about um, prospecting for gold and what it does to people. I mean, and this movie is just full of foreshadowing. I mean, it's, it's telegraphing everything to you, you know, this is, this is going to happen, you know, so everything he says about, um, about what happens when you prospect gold um, is the second half of the movie. Um, but, but I just like, I, I'm just so drawn to that character. Um, an interesting thing about this movie, as I as I um, as I thought about it, is um, we talked. We've talked in the past about movies where you keep waiting for this bad thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting in this movie is bad things happen in this movie, but you you keep waiting for specific bad things to happen that don't. You keep waiting for like them to like for for all the characters to turn on each other but i guess should say if you're viewing this through um fred dobbs's point of view he keeps waiting for this terrible thing to happen to him and the people around him aren't necessarily doing that um but i think that's that that's just a kind of a really interesting piece because that's often how i watch a movie is i'm waiting for the when is this thing gonna turn on me well, I mean, you know, so part of what's happening, of course, Sam, is, you know, th- those are those are the genre expectations. And, uh, you know, the question is, does the film live up to the genre expectations or is it in some way subvert it? But I think with this particular film, the other the other reason this, you, you, you have that feeling is it's his narrative not only sets up a kind of um, a kind of trope, but it also, in a sense, kind of sets up the theme of fate and the the kind of the connection of. Um, the interconnection of gold, fate, and human nature. Um, and so, of course, the other thing that happens in that scene is uh, Bo, uh, Fred C. Dobbs says, oh, I, I, I'd I, never be that way. I, you know, I, right. I, I would just stop at 25,000. And so you sort of know, of course, that this means he is going to be the guy that is un- un- uncontrollably uh, given over to greed. I will the other the other actor in this trio is somebody who I was not familiar with at all but I loved Tim Holt as Bob Curtin. There was something about that guy that seemed um not rooted in 1948 when this film was made. Like I could imagine so for something about him I could imagine him walking onto a film set today and just and be and I don't uh, do, is is he somebody who uh, went on to do other things as well. He seems to be the youngest of those three. Yeah, and and actually, there's something about him, even with the beard, he's still kind of baby faced. Um, well, this is he really, um, he he really only had, he, he never had a major career. Uh, Sam, he had two kind of important films, and this is one of them. But interesting enough, the other important film for him is an earlier film. Uh, he stars in Orson Welles's Magnificent Ambersons uh, as um, as uh, Georgie Amberson, and he is fantastic in that film as well um the problem is or the issue is that character is so entirely unlikable um i mean it's really an interesting contrast you really despise that character in 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 that film um and it's one of the reasons one of the reasons why the film didn't do well at the box office people couldn't stand the character but those are his two kind of major films and he Mm -hmm. did do um he did feature mostly in kind of in westerns Hmm. yeah no i just he was I don't know if it's something about his eyes behind the beard or something, but I just, I kept being drawn, uh, drawn to him. As I was looking at reviews, there was one line in, uh, 
in Roger Ebert's review. So he wrote this, I think, when the DVD came out. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, Ebert wasn't writing this in 1948. Uh, but it, it jumped out to me because I, I think it uh, connects to another uh, another artist that you're uh, particularly interested in. So uh, Ebert writes, The Treasure mm -hmm. of the Sierra Madre is a story in the Joseph Conrad tradition, using adventure not as an end in itself, but as a test of its characters. And I will say one of the great lectures I've ever heard in my life was a Barrett Fisher lecture on um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness <laughs> and in, in, uh, in CWC uh, in the late 90s. So mm -hmm. that, that jumped out at me because I'm like, oh, I, I sort of see where he's uh, thinking about like they're doing one thing prospecting for gold but this whole thing is revealing all these other things about them yeah that, that, that kind of gets back to the idea of genre and how you can use genre to go beyond what those genres usually do you know back when i was um studying conrad in, in grad school i was reading some of the um some of the people that conrad read like for example Ryder haggard uh she and king solomon's minds and it's interesting to watch how those basic um those basic elements of those adventure stories then get used, but then transformed into something that's with a much deeper interest. He takes this film and other elements and Defy Bloods, right, and transforms it into something that's really significant. So, so actually, it's, it's funny you, you bring that up because um, in the contemporary review by Bosley Crowther uh, in the New York Times, Crowther writes something exactly along those lines, which is he talks about all these serious elements in the film. And then he says, but don't worry, it's a really fun film. You'll, you'll, right. you'll really enjoy it, it's a great adventure. And I, I think it's, it, it's, it's a rare filmmaker, and when Hollywood, when classic Hollywood is at its best, that's what it does. It makes films that on the surface, you can find very entertaining, but below the surface, there's something much more serious going on. And if it's a good Hollywood film, it'll have a kind of work at both of those levels. So one story that, um, that I thought of as I was watching this, um, a very different story. Um, I, I thought about Lord of the Rings with uh, with watching this movie in part, like sort of what is the the power of well, because obviously the I mean gold is wealth and and wealth is power, and there's this this sort of sense of like, um, you know, when he says at the beginning, you know, sure I would take my twenty five and walk away, but then there it sort of takes hold of them in the way you know in a story like lord of the rings in in a way that like the the ring of power has this sort of control um over people and it reminds me i'm going to tell a story of the greatest uh class session i think i ever taught and it was entirely accidental um i so this was probably 10 or 15 years ago i was teaching a basically like a freshman seminar class and i don't know what we were supposed to do that that day but the students came into class and I sort of asked them, oh, you know, I asked them to tell tell me about their weekend, just to kind of as an icebreaker to get things going. And the first student to talk showed, no, she didn't even show it. She didn't bring it to class. She talked about finding this piece, this like kind of gaudy piece of jewelry in a parking lot. Um, and she was like, it was kind of ugly, but like I picked it up and... Um, and then she she ta she told the story about like showing it to her mom and her mom was like, huh, we should probably get this checked out. And they went to a jeweler to sort of see like, is this like actual, is this like a piece of junk? Is this actual jewelry? And the jeweler told them, oh yeah, it's nothing. But then offered to buy it from them right away, which they didn't sell it because they're like, why is he trying to buy it <laughs> if it's nothing? And then And then it led to the whole class talking about like, what are you supposed to do when you find something like this? 
Mm. So it started as like this ethics thing about, well, do you bring it back to the store? I mean, it was found in this parking lot, but wasn't found in the store. And, and um, But the weird thing was, as the discussion went on, and it's ended up taking the entire 50-minute class period. Again, I apologize that <laughs> I didn't teach whatever we were supposed to teach that day. We st I noticed the conversation started to shift and people stopped talking about it as this object and started to talk talking about it as a, as a dollar figure. And then mm -hmm. it, and then everybody started projecting what it started with what they would do with the money. And by the end, they were saying what they were going to do with the money. And like, <laughs> you don't, this isn't yours. We don't even know what this is. And, and this was, you know, probably around 2005 or six. And I said, guys, this is, this is the ring of power, right? This is this thing mm. that's like, it has taken hold of us. She didn't even bring it into the room, but we were all like, without realizing it, like we were all had projected out all of this stuff for ourselves on it. And I was like, this is what power can do to us, right? This, wow. there, it has this potential. It was the most fascinating class period I've ever, I've ever had as a teacher. And again, it was not the lesson. I don't know what we were supposed to do, but, but watching Bogart in this movie made me think like, that's what we were doing in class that day as well. Well, I, I, yeah, that, that's exactly what's happening with the gold because as with any, any temptation Lord, Lord of the, or, or any power, Lord of the Rings is a great analogy. Um, it, it, it both tests and reveals and change and changes character. Uh, it's also interesting you bring that up because of course, um, ivory is at the center of heart of darkness. Uh, as as the great as the great temptation, I mean, what I, what I find interesting about the three characters is that they they really um, they really describe a kind of moral arc, right? So so you've got Dobbs who really becomes uh, completely corrupted by the gold, and of course assumes that everybody else is as corrupt as he is. So the typical paranoid, right? If you think people are out to get you, then you're sure that then then that the, you see everybody in that light. Um, and then at the opposite end of the spectrum, I think, is Curtin, um, because what I find interesting is when they speculate on what they will, what they will do with their great wealth, um, Bogart's uh, speculation is entirely hedonistic. He's going to mm -hmm. buy all these clothes. He's going to buy all this food. He's going to boss people around. He's going uh, to consume. He's going to... He's gonna find women. I mean, it's it's all about. Yeah, it literally becomes power, right? It's like yeah. I have the power now to go into oh, this yeah, restaurant. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. if everything's perfect, I might I'm, send it back. I'm gonna lord it over people, and then and then you got Curtin on the on, on the other hand saying, um, you know, I'm gonna buy myself a peach orchard and and, and raise fruit and you know and, and do something kind of productive, and then and then um, you know, kind of in the uh, sort of in in the middle is is Howard, where you know he says, yeah, I think I'll be happy with. You know whatever it is, and that'll set me up for the rest for the rest of my life. And of course, he and Curtin are both willing to to share some of it with the widow. Which right. Dobbs has a great line when they say they're going to do this. He says um, uh, so, so something like, "You you two guys you two guys must have been born in a revival meeting." <laughs> right. What's interesting though is Howard says this, but if Howard's to be believed. He's been here. This is not his first time in this story. Right, right. Right. I mean, so he has been Dobbs before. He's probably been Curtin before. And right, maybe this exactly. is that arc you're talking about. So the the thing that that I'm curious about is if they were to have gotten off that mountain, like Howard can say that, but Howard's also the person who says people always say that, but then they do, like 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 how dark is his story had he gotten off that mountain with the gold? 
Right. Well, yeah. I mean, he certainly was willing when the when uh, when they voted on whether or not to uh, to bump off Cody. Right. I mean, he was willing. He was willing to go along with that plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says when they're when they're dividing up the gold, he says, "I'm not the most honest. I'm just mm-hmm. the most trustworthy because right. I, I because basically I couldn't pull it over on you two guys." So yeah, he's very he's very realistic slash slash cynical. Um, before we before we get off Lord of the Rings, do you know the other Lord of the Rings connection with this movie? <laughs> very tangentially um well i i I, no, because all i can think it has to do with the it has to do with the director so in the 70s and early 80s the rankin and bass animated hobbit and return of the king gandalf is played by john houston the voice of gandalf i did not know that okay yeah and of course he he gives himself a bit part in this film of course right right getting the money out um, yeah, actually, I I was so interested because I didn't know I knew where the story was going. I didn't know how it started, how much time we spend in Tampico, yeah. and then when they go off on this other job. And there was a moment when I was thinking, this is the movie where they go prospecting for gold, right? Like, what is yeah. this other stuff that's happening? But um, but I actually really enjoyed everything everything even before they they go out prospecting. I like that part of the movie was was really interesting. Yeah, the, the pacing is very good. I I too was surprised at how long kind of the, the prologue or the setup was. But then I knew um, after he bought the lottery ticket from a very young Robert Blake. Uh, in his first film role, um, <laughs> after he bought the lottery ticket and said that it, the drawing was in three weeks, you know, talk about foreshadowing, right? I knew, I, right. I knew, we, I knew we were in for some time. I didn't know if they were going to do a direct cut or not, but yeah. So I like the way that I like the way they set it up. Um, yeah, I thought it worked really well. Another interesting scene was the the fight scene that happens in mm. the um, in the bar. Yeah. Um, both because it's, I mean, it shows, it, it shows us sort of what these two are capable of, mm-hmm. you know, because you're, because you're, because it's also thinking about, you know, later on we're going to see them up on the mountain and we might see them at odds with each other. So we know that they're actually, even in that situation, they're capable of some, some pretty major violence because that's a, that's a long scene and it's they a keep, long, it's a, it's a pretty brutal scene. And, yeah. They keep picking and, each other back up to, to knock each other down again. And at, at, one, at one point I was thinking, really, the two guys can't take on this one guy, but it's, yeah, it, it's quite a, yeah, it's quite a Donnybrook. Um, and then that's where we also see the first time that uh, that Dobbs has money, right? Because he, he pulls out the guy's wallet and um, counts out what they're owed, and then throws the rest back at him. Right, we, which which just reinforces the idea that is as uh, as uh, is said earlier on. You know, I, I I've seen what gold does to men's souls. So mm-hmm. it suggests that Dobbs is not. An, I mean, there's a couple of elements of Dobbs. I mean, there is a little bit of vanity because you also see him using the money previously to get a decent haircut. Um, but there's also the sense that yeah, he's not. He's not corrupt from the beginning, you know. So when he says in the flop house, I would stop at twenty five thousand, he really thinks that. And as you said, when he goes through the wild, he really does take only what they're owed. So I think that's an important element that you have to believe that the person who's been corrupted was corruptible but not necessarily corrupt at the beginning although otherwise there's no drama going on um other sort of foreshadowing moments that i i only realized sort of in in hindsight as i was kind of reviewing this um there's a moment where dobbs is getting ready to go into town and he's talking with with howard um and in and this is when when 
uh, Dobbs has sort of gone almost like full Gollum at this point. He's talking to himself and he's like, he's super paranoid. And Howard says, well, why don't you just take your gold with you then? And he says, well, then why? Of course you'd want that. Then the bandits would take it from me. And he's like, the bandits are going to get you anyhow. They would kill you for your shoes. And then at the end, yep. they don't take the gold. They literally kill him for his shoes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the other, the other one, which I think is, is really powerful is when they're, the first time when they think they've found gold mm. and they call Howard back and they're pouring water over the rocks to kind of yeah, reveal yeah. it. And he says, you don't know this, but water's going to be more valuable than gold to you exactly. at a certain point. And then it's, and it's at the moment when he's, uh, when he's getting a drink of water that that's yeah. when the bandits come up on him. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that's all part of a really, uh, there's a really, it's a really tight plotting in the film. There's really, it's very, um, it's very, lean, even though it's a longish movie, it's really lean in that, in that respect. Um, and of course you get the return of the federales to do away with the bandits that have, that have killed Dobbs. So, yeah. Um, what do you make of the ending that each man gets? So we have, we have, um, Dobbs's <laughs> end, but we also have this, uh, interesting scene at the end with uh, with Howard and and Bob, where Howard just starts laughing and Bob just starts laughing. But they also have a they have somewhere where they're headed, even though the the gold is all gone. Um, they're not they don't seem totally despondent. They have they have directions that they're headed, almost as if they're lucky they they didn't come out with that gold yeah well first of all i i want to say the the, the ending the ending is kind of interesting because um when i watched the film uh it was in the afternoon and i didn't have quite enough time to finish it because something else came along so then i spent the last 15 minutes after dinner so i was watching it and my wife walked into the room and um she probably had seen the film years ago i don't know but after it ended she said well that, that was kind of anticlimactic uh, I think she came in after Dobbs was killed, um, but it's but it is interesting the way you know the way because films like this sometimes kind of end on their high note, um, but but other times there is a, a much stronger kind of denouement uh, that happens. Um, so one 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 of the things I like about about what happens at, at the end is um, the line that uh, the curtain says about. I'm no worse off than I was 10 months ago in Tampico. So there, there, there is a sense that things have kind of come full circle uh, for, for him. And there is a sense that um, the, 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 tra the transformative power of that laughter, right? I mean, there's, there's two scenes where you get laughter. You get the scene where Howard dances and laughs when they find the gold, and then he laughs when they lose the gold. And there's a sense that there's something fundamentally um, okay with them uh, that there isn't with Dobbs. And um, so they've got alternatives, right? The, he's gonna go to Texas, uh, find the widow and somehow make his way there anyway. Howard gets and, to go and, back. And you know, work at a peach grove is his hope. It's like so, so, yep. so he almost is getting the thing he wanted. Like he's like, well, I could just, I could actually just go do, I wouldn't necessarily own the peach grove, but like, but I could go live that life that uh, the, uh, when he's sort of describing his his best days, right? Right. And, and and I think the other reason why Howard responds as he does is another bit of foreshadowing, as you mentioned, is basically uh, he's fulfilled his own destiny as he described it in the Flophouse. You know, he's won and he's lost. He's won and he's lost. And no matter how much he wins, he always loses again. 
Um, and this time, so he's used to it. It's like, this is just what happens. You, you find a treasure, you lose a treasure. So that's why for him, as he says, it's a joke. It's a joke of the, of the Lord or fate or nature, but it's, it's, a, it's, just, it's just a big joke. And uh, what do you make of, of Howard's end, though? Because Howard is going to go live in this village as a medicine man or something, right? <laughs> I think actually that that part of the film, and, and Ebert actually sing, singles that out, the scene when he's in the village sort of being worshipped. I, I I don't know if it's going to end well for Howard, because Howard is not a medicine man. And the next time, the next time somebody somebody ends up sick or dead and he's not able to do anything, I think he's I think he's going to be toast. Yeah, yeah. So he'd be better off if he worked in a hardware store like he was I think talking so, about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Barrett, why are we drawn to... Um, why are we drawn to stories like this? Because I will say there are a few kind of archetypal stories that I always all like like the, this this idea of um the i mean in, in some ways i would say they they almost match the kinds of dreams i have right uh, like, like i am a type of person who will sometimes have a dream where you mysteriously uncover this like bag of money i mean it, my dreams are very literal sometimes like right and then it's like how am i responding to that what do i do with that um, or this idea that someone's going to cheat you out of or cheat a character out of this or that. Um, I am deeply drawn to the to that. That's one of the stories that I'm like, I'm always drawn to. And it seems like these are stories we tell over and over and over again. Well, I think, I mean, I think there's a number of different angles to think about it. I suppose, you know, one, one way to think about it is um, if we are drawn to stories that kind of reinforce for us some values that we hold dear, um, so for example, the notion that there, there is no such thing as striking it rich. There is no such thing as a free lunch. There is no such thing as winning the lottery, which of course is interesting because this film has both of those things, both winning right. the lottery and striking it rich. Um, and when people do those things, our usual response is envy. Um, why did that guy get that lucky break or why was she able to achieve that? They don't really deserve that. That could be me, but when that happens to them and then they get their comeuppance, uh, that enables you to say, yes, you know, the path that I've chosen, the path of hard work, the path of not relying on luck or chance, uh, that really is the right way to go. It's the harder way, but it's the more, it's the more moral way. So I think there's a sense in which it enables us uh, to feel uh, somewhat uh, superior uh, to, to people like Fred C. Dobbs. That's one. That's one. One explanation. The other explanation, of course, is that um, you actually hope against all hope, as does. Well, I, I, that's a plot spoiler. I won't say that. But you, 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 you actually hope against all hope that maybe this time it will turn out different. Um, and that, and, yeah, and that's one of those things I wonder. Like, if I, if I, if we could have watched this with with fresh new eyes, like, would you feel different about those moments when they are like being successful? mining the gold and like and thinking i wonder where this story's headed <laughs> you know or, or would the or would the 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 how strong would that foreshadowing feel because you almost don't get to feel the foreshadow because you it was foreshadowed before i saw it you know like right. like I, I wonder how in 1948 this story looked if you just walked into a movie theater and said i'm gonna watch the movie that's showing because i go to the movies you know and you didn't hadn't read a review of it or anything like that well, you know, I, I think one, one thing that's characteristic of films of the classic Hollywood period is they, they rarely subvert 
um, some basic generic rules, and they rarely subvert some Hayes Code rules. So you know, you know, according to the Hayes Code, basically the bad guy can't win in the end. Um, and even in even a, a really um, even a well-intentioned good guy who's done something bad uh, can in some way redeem himself, but may still have to pay the price. So, so, so in this particular film, there's no way that the, I, I don't, you know, the ending as you observe for a number of reasons is kind of predetermined. But then I think that, again, I have to make reference to the five bloods. I think that, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I think that something there's a little bit more pushing against the genre in that in that film. And I did find myself as I watched that film wondering how or whether certain generic expectations would be defeated. And some are and some aren't. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of uh, the treasure of the Sierra Madre? Yeah. You know, I just want to say a couple things about Hollywood movie making, I guess. Um, this was the... Um, Oh no no! I, I want I want I want to say one more thing about gold actually before I do Hollywood movie making. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about Howard's speech about gold is um, what he says uh, the value of gold is. Oh, I loved that. You know, he says that it's it's and he does some really interesting math, right? It's the it's the labor that's put into it uh, that gives it value. So the notion is gold's value is entirely subjective, right? And to me, that also helps to make plausible what happens at the end. When the bandits open those bags and they don't recognize the gold for what it is. And that's one moment where I wondered why Houston didn't shoot in color. Um, because when those bags open, um, it does just look like sand. And I thought, okay, that makes sense because that's sort of, that's, that's all the, the bandits see. So for them, the boots and the hides are much more valuable than the, than the gold. So, but of course they die for what they think is valuable in that case as well. So I really like that notion that um, gold really has no intrinsic value, um, but gold has value and significance only in what people put, what people project upon it and what people are willing to do for it. Well, and I think what's interesting about the argument he makes is it's not just the labor, the person who mines the gold puts it's into it, but it's, the desire of all the other people who are laboring and not getting it. So he yeah. says, if a thousand people go out prospecting and one strikes gold, all of their labor went into that person's the value of that person's gold. I've never thought about it that way. And that's no. really interesting. That is interesting. And, um, and, th and then the other interesting contrast is when they read the letter from Cody's widow, you get, you know, it's, it's cliche and it's sentiment, but it's true. Uh, but it's tragically true, right? She says, we found life's real treasure, you know, and the love they have with one another. But that, but that gets defeated um, yeah, by, yeah. by his desire for gold. Um, yeah, so a couple things about, about, the, about just the production. It's, it was one of the um, first Hollywood films to be shot on location outside the U.S. Right? They actually shot it in Tampico uh, and in, uh, in, in, in Durango. Um, and the other thing I find really interesting about it is there was an earlier effort to, um, to film the, the book and um, the Mexican government was, was opposed to it because um, they thought it, it was going to depict Mexicans in a bad light. And one of the things I found interesting about this film, I can't think of many other Hollywood films of the period where great swatches of a foreign language are not translated. Uh, right. And I thought that just showed a lot of respect for the culture. Well, it was also a brilliant choice too, because of the three 
main characters, only one of them speaks Spanish. So again, just like they're stuck to rely on Howard for how you're going to mine gold, they again, you need to rely on Howard because he's the only one who can talk to um, who can talk to these people, you know, as they're as they're coming up asking for help and things like that. So it actually helps you again see kind of the the uh, lack of ability that um, that Fred and Bob have with mm. with even navigating some of these things that they need to do. So if World War II hadn't intervened, Houston was going to make this film right after Maltese Falcon. So if World War II hadn't intervened, it would have been George Raft, uh, Edward G. Robinson, and John Garfield. Um, and I don't know. I mean, those are all three fine actors, but I can't imagine I can't imagine it being quite the same. Um, and then uh, Houston wanted Ronald Reagan uh, in the Cody role, uh, but Warner had Reagan under contract, and they they wanted him to do to do something else. Um, the, the other story I love about this film is um, you know Houston and and Bogart had this long fruitful relationship, but they also had a little bit of a contentious relationship. So Bogart was a, a skillful yachtsman, and he, um, he was planning to uh, participate in a race out in Honolulu. And he was really afraid that the, he, he kept getting concerned that the film was going to go over, uh, over, over schedule, and he wouldn't be able to, to get, get to the race on time. So evidently, he, uh, <laughs> he kept bugging Houston about this. Are we going to be done? Are we going to be done? And finally, Houston grabbed him by the nose and gave it a hard twist. And <laughs> Bogart never bothered him about it again. <laughs> there, there are lots of uh, prank stories from this set. My oh, favorite God. was the scene where they're sitting around the fire and Cody's there and Cody's eat, they're eating and Cody's like wolfing down food. Um, and apparently they shot that scene a number of times because Houston wanted to see how much food he could get uh, the actor <laughs> Bruce Bennett to eat. Apparently the last few times they weren't even filming. They just ran through it again. And then he called lunch <laughs> after that just to get Bennett to eat all this chili. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you, uh, what do you have for us for next week? Um, well, I'm going to switch gears, um, Sam, and I, I don't really have a, uh, I don't have a logical segue from this film to the next film, um, except to say that one film I had in mind wasn't available, so I had to rethink. Um, I, I want to I revisit what I thought was a fantastic a re recent film that came out uh, end of 2017, beginning of 2018, um, the most recent film uh, from, uh, um, well, it's not the most recent film, Ethan Hawke's been in one, one, one of Ethan Hawke's recent films, uh, first performed, um, Paul Schrader's most recent film. Um, and of course, Schrader is, uh, you know, did the screenplay for Raging Bull and um, uh, Taxi Driver, most famously. But this is one of the most interesting films I've seen in a while that I think um, takes seriously um, both matters of faith, which is always an issue in Schrader's films, uh, matters of faith and um, matters of um, other significance, such as uh, environmental crisis, global warming those kinds of things. So uh, I'll, I'll warn people ahead of time, it's it's not an uplifting film in some respects. Um, it's a tough film, but I just think it's a film that's got so much in it that we can talk about. And uh, and I just want an excuse to watch it again. So, Well, I'm excited. I haven't seen it. I've heard great things about it. I've heard great things about the Ethan Hawke performance um, in it. Uh, and I'm very excited to uh, to watch that for next week. 
So Barrett, thank you so much for uh, talking us through the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Now, now I actually know that I have seen the film because I, because <laughs> I have a record of it here that I watched it. Um, this was really great. Thanks for, um, thanks for listening. And yeah. we will catch you next week in the video store. Yeah.